Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It is a strange example. We've got conservative parties around the world who've become revolutionary. That's not what conservative parties are for. Conservative parties are there to preserve institutions and to fend off radical change. We're living at a time when the Conservative Party in the UK, you can draw your own parallels elsewhere, has become this revolutionary force. It does have echoes of the ultra-left in that it's elevated to the pinnacle of uh, achievement a purity an ideological purity that is really dangerous. That's David Miliband. He's been a New Yorker for about a decade, but before that, he was head of policy for Tony Blair's New Labour Party and foreign secretary, a cabinet position under Prime Minister Gordon Brown. We talked about Parliament, Brexit, the UK's new Prime Minister, and his big job heading the International Rescue Committee. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Now Cafe has a weekly newsletter to help you make sense of the news cycle. See for yourself at cafe.com slash brief. Each Friday, the Cafe Brief recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com slash brief. And you'll get show notes for Stay Tuned sent right to your email inbox. That's cafe.com slash brief. Hi Preet, this is Thomas calling from Atlanta, Georgia. I love your podcasts. I have a question about the Second Amendment. I understand that it protects the rights of Americans to keep and bear arms, ratified in 1791. I guess I'm really frustrated with all of the shootings, and um, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to my bewilderment about how assault weapons and modern destructive weapons technology are allowed because back in 1791 the arms that they were thinking of that Americans should have a right to bear were primarily like muskets. I was thinking about this in terms of another constitutional amendment issue which was prohibition. The 18th amendment started prohibition and then it was changed by the 21st amendment which ended prohibition. It was problematic and it was not working so what can be done about the Second Amendment? Hey, Thomas, thanks for your question. You raise a lot of interesting points that I think are getting fresh attention since the mass shootings over the past weekend, and also by virtue of the fact that we're in a presidential contest. And every single one of the Democratic contenders, as articles have been pointing out, is sort of of the same view that things need to be done. Now, this point about taking literally the words the founders put into the Second Amendment of the Bill of Rights if you want to take it literally, that it was meant to preserve and protect only the kinds of arms that were known to folks back in 1791, you know, people have suggested provocatively, well, that must mean necessarily that all those assault weapons and other modern firearms can easily be prohibited. But that's not how the Supreme Court has dealt with the issue. To me, what's really important right now is to do what is possible to be done. You have 90 plus percent of people in America who are supportive of universal background checks, you have 70 plus percent of people in America supportive of a gun registry over a 30-day waiting period, all of which have mass support 
and have had mass support for a very long time and maybe some impetus to do something about it. I just saw in the last couple of days, more than one Republican who had previously had a good NRA rating suggesting openness to some of these provisions. A constitutional amendment, though not impossible, is a very difficult thing to achieve. And I'm not saying one way or the other that it's a good idea. I mean, yeah, it's true that America decided to enact prohibition and decided to undo prohibition all in the space of a few years. But my God, we've had the Equal Rights Amendment pending for years and years and years now and can't get that done. And that seems a lot less controversial than doing something to the Second Amendment. It seems to me that there are a lot of common sense things we can do about which there is a lot of consensus and has been consensus for a long time. And they require simply passing some laws, not amending the Constitution. And let's start with that. Let's get that done. Let's get focused on that. Here's an email from listener Wendy Holtzman, who writes, I love your show. Thank you for helping keep America informed. I don't understand why the gun safety advocates in addressing the Second Amendment aren't always invoking the Heller decision. It seems very straightforward to me. Can you shed some light on this? Well, Wendy, you actually shed light on this by quoting directly in your email to me from the Heller decision, which is an important seminal Supreme Court decision about the Second Amendment. And I'll just read the rest of your email. In the Heller decision, Justice Scalia wrote, quote, Like most rights, the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner and for whatever purpose. Furthermore, you quote, Nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms, close quote. That's about right. There is a lot of room, even under current Supreme Court jurisprudence, even in opinions penned by the late Justice Scalia, that give a lot of room and support to all sorts of common sense regulations that are being proposed even as we speak. So yeah, people should be citing to the Heller decision and that Scalia portion of it in their debates with folks from the NRA and others who would oppose it. This question comes in a tweet from listener Rodrigo Schenkel. He writes, hi, Preet, fan of the show from Honduras. Nice to know we have international reach. Do prosecutors take any special considerations regarding international political ramifications of the cases they bring forward against foreigners in U.S. soil? Hashtag Aspreet. Well, that's a great question and a complicated one. Uh, as people know, if you follow the track record and the docket of the Southern District of New York, we brought a lot of cases internationally. We brought cases against narcotics traffickers, international arms traffickers, people who gave material support to terrorist organizations. So we had a constant presence in other countries, dealing with other law enforcement agencies, also on cyber, for example. Um, one of my favorite statistics from my first year as U.S. attorney was this. In any given year, prosecutors from my office in the Southern District visited between 40 and 45 different countries because as crime goes global and the threat becomes international, the arm of the law has to get a little longer. Not everyone loved that. And of course, there were sometimes cases where there were sensitive issues relating to international relations and politics. As a general matter, the Justice Department pursues crimes that it can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there's an impact on the United States, if someone's trying to import drugs into the United States, if someone's plotting a case against the United States, if someone's engaging in espionage towards the United States, we brought the case. And that's that. Depending on the circumstances and the sensitivity, I'll give you an example of maybe the, one of the most sensitive cases we brought during my entire time along the lines that you're mentioning. And that's the Russian spy case from the summer of 2010, where we charged 10 Russian spies operating in the United States and then ended up engaging in a spy swap after they pled guilty to those crimes. That was obviously something, given the relationship between the U.S. and Russia and the foreign policy implications that we brought because we thought it was appropriate to bring, but there were discussions at the highest levels of the government, including with the State Department, about how we would proceed. So there is sensitivity to those things. My view was always uh, law and order governs, the rule of law matters, and it doesn't matter where you're from. Other parts of the government, uh, like the State Department, if they knew about the case, would maybe put forward its objections or its sensitivities. And then someone at a higher pay grade than either the attorney general or the secretary of state might weigh in and resolve a difference of opinion on those things. It really depends on the circumstances, but sometimes it is a consideration. My guest this week is David Miliband, head of the International Rescue Committee, a nonprofit started in 1933 by Albert Einstein. The IRC offers humanitarian aid, relief, and resettlement for refugees and displaced people in more than 40 countries around the world. Last year, the IRC helped over 5,000 refugees resettle in America. And today, there's a record 68 million displaced people around the world. 
If you're interested in ways to empower those people in need, go to rescue.org to find out how you can help. David Miliband and I discussed his own refugee story, the conflicts that are displacing people, and America's role in the crisis. I also got his reactions to the UK's new prime minister and the easy comparisons of Boris Johnson to Donald Trump. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by The New Yorker, some of the best writing in America today. Enjoy the works of Emily Nussbaum, Pulitzer Prize-winning television critic for The New Yorker, or Masha Gessen, who's written about the rise of Vladimir Putin and the disagreements between Trump, Pelosi, and the squad. At Stay Tuned, we often turn to The New Yorker for our research and learn a great deal as we did with the profiles of 2020 presidential candidates and my recent guests, Andrew Yang and Julian Castro. Get 12 weeks for just $6, plus The New Yorker tote bag, weekly home delivery of the print edition, and unlimited access to newyorker.com with exclusive site-only stories every day when you go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code preet. You'll also be able to access the apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Again, that's newyorker.com slash preet and enter the code preet to save 50% on a 12-week subscription and get that exclusive tote. Stay Tuned is also supported by America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. With easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door, all you have to do is cook and enjoy. Prepare delicious meals at home with step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients. You'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout. HelloFresh has you covered. With family recipes, vegetarian, and fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers, there's something for everyone. I love how HelloFresh lets you break out of a dinner rut And if you find yourself traveling, it's easy to change delivery days or even skip a week. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash StayTuned80 and enter StayTuned80. It's like receiving eight meals free. Only at HelloFresh.com slash StayTuned80. Promo code StayTuned80. David Miliband, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Preet. It's good to be with you. So I should tell folks that we are um, not recording in our usual studio. We're in your offices at the International Rescue Committee in Midtown, not far from Grand Central. So if you hear some background noise, that's just the bustle of the great city of New York. Thank you for coming to our hood. (laughs) Well, you're very important, so I'll, I'll travel for someone like you. So you've been in New York for how long? Been in New York for nearly six years. So do you now like New York more than London? No. Uh, wow. Because I'm a Londoner. People will start chanting, send him back. I know, that's the danger. I, but I can't. You wouldn't want someone who abandons their country <laughs> quite so you easily. Like you could say you like wrong. them close to the same, no? But then you'd say, oh, they're the politician in you. You haven't become a true NGO worker. Right. There's you're no, you're there's a no dodging, weaving <laughs> uh, politician. I feel very lucky to be living in such an extraordinary city. My family's uh, here. Uh, the organization I'm working for gives me enormous, is, is a real privilege. I mean, we're doing amazing stuff. It, it, in a way, it could only exist in New York. Yeah. It's not an accident that Einstein came to New York in the 1930s, that he founded the IRC to rescue Jews from Europe, that it's built on that base to become this global uh, organization. But London is an amazing city because it's got 360 degrees of history, culture. Everything's concentrated in a way that the finance, the politics, the culture, it's a more centralized country. So in a way, it's a bit of an unfair comparison to compare London with anywhere. I was just in London with my family, all three of my kids and with my wife. We quite liked it. Went to the Churchill War Rooms. Yes. We spent hours in the Churchill War Rooms. That was tremendous. I was amazed. My kids stopped at every significant spot, you know, listened to the the audio tour, did all the reading. And then we also went to Parliament. And what I didn't know until we were ushered into the room, unlike with the United States House of Representatives and Senate, you can't go onto the floor as a tourist. It was a weekend for us in, mm-hmm. in London, which is, I guess, why we got to stand in the two chambers. Because it was a weekend, you were able... it was a weekend. They let you do that. Did you not have a... Spe- did you have a special friend who was... I did not have a you. special friend. Um, I, I could have to call you. I could have found you a special <laughs> no. friend, but it... It was good enough. Isn't the House of Commons amazing that it's, it's so, so small. small? Yeah. How many members of the House of Commons? 650. 650. That room mm. clearly cannot contain 650. So you've got people sitting on both sides opposite each other, which makes it unusual for a debating chamber because usually they're in the round. And you've got standing room and sitting room. 
And so if you've got 600, 650 MPs in there, which they might be for prime minister's questions or for a set piece debate, a big debate, it's a real, it gives meaning to that word cacophony. I mean, yes. And the other thing, it is proper debate because you can make a speech, but it's very unlikely if you're a front rank politician to get through the speech without taking interruptions, interjections from the other side, which if you refuse to take them, then you're a chicken and you yeah. don't win the debate. And then but if you do take them, there are some smart Alec on the other side who'll quote something against you. And so it does, it's a proper debate. There's a new prime minister as of a week ago named Boris Johnson. Many Americans may know by his haircut. Most people in the UK never voted for him. No, he's a party leader. I mean, we're a parliamentary democracy. Parliament is sovereign. The Queen always has a prime minister. She's never without a prime minister or without a government. And he was elected by his party. So first he was elected MP from his district. district. Yeah. Which is a small number, like being elected a member of the House yeah. of Representatives in, in The average in size the of a constituency is about... 65,000 people, so one-tenth the size of your congressional But then district. the party leader is elected, again, not by a large constituency, but by a subset of citizens in the UK, about 140,000. Who are members of the Conservative Party. And how do you become a member of the Conservative Party? You sign up to the values of the Conservative Party and pay, I don't know, £25 a year or something. And that entitles you to vote? That entitles you to vote in a Tory leadership election. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have my own history with party <laughs> leadership elections, which we're gonna we get might to get into or, or not. But... Um, I think that the bigger point is that the country's in the biggest crisis it's faced outside wartime, probably ever. I mean, the referendum on membership of the European Union has created a wrecking ball aimed not just at the economy of the United Kingdom, but also at its politics and its constitution. Because in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, the debate about whether the people there want to be part of the United Kingdom has been given fresh uh, impetus. And so it, it grieves me a lot to see not just the economic damage and the reputational damage, but the real threat that exists because a parliamentary democracy had pitted against it the mandate of a people's vote. I spent three years as foreign minister arguing against having a referendum on the grounds that referendums were the prerogative of demagogues and dictators and that a parliamentary democracy uh, would be threatened by the creation of an alternative mandate. And I'm very sorry to say that that is true. It's not just sour grapes that I was on the wrong side of a 52-48 decision. It's that at a time when liberal democracy is under threat all around the world, or 113 countries have had democratic recessions since 2006, uh, the UK should have added fuel to the fire with this challenge to parliamentary government. So on this issue of Brexit, which is very complicated for a lot of people, especially on the side of the pond. It's a bit like California, or maybe a better example, Texas, deciding to secede from the Union. Some people would favor that <laughs> in, in, in America. Well, actually, most European, most continental Europeans are actually sad about Britain leaving, not sorry, despite the fact that we can be a pain in the ass. But that referendum happened yeah. over your opposition and other people's opposition. But Brexit hasn't been achieved yet. Now, Boris Johnson has taken office. He's promising to do what by when? He's promising that... At the end of the six-month extension for negotiations that was agreed between the previous government and the European Union, which is October the 31st, Halloween, by unhappy coincidence, we will leave, he says, come hell or high water, do or die, whether or not there's a negotiated agreement for Britain's economic, security, social, educational relations with the European Union. And this is not like deciding not to go ahead with a house purchase. It's not saying, no deal, I, I thought I was going to buy that house, but I'm not going to, I'm going to stay in the house I've got. It's saying, I'm going to scrap the architecture and the water supply and the uh, infrastructure of the house I've got, and I'm going to move somewhere else, but I can't tell you what it's going to be yet. So you're saying it's not responsible? It, it's grossly irresponsible. It's an act of unilateral political disarmament. It's an act of economic lunacy. And it's driven by a phantom. And the phantom is the idea that Britain is a victim of European federalism. There is no European federalism and there is no victimhood for Britain. So do you think what Boris Johnson wants to have happen in six months will come to pass? Or is there a way to avert what you think will be a further crisis? Well, I think that he's on the one hand justifying this course of action on the grounds that it will force the European Union to make concessions. But that's like saying, 
you see this revolver I've got in front of me? I'm going to pick it up and blow my brains out unless you do what I say. And Sometimes that can work. Well, yeah, but sometimes people say, well, blowing your brains out, as long as you don't blow my brains out, you know, you're welcome to go ahead. So on the one hand, he's trying to justify it on the grounds of increased leverage. On the other hand, he's saying, look, it's not going to be so bad. Breaking off these relations with the European Union is not so bad. There's a big wide world out there. President Trump's waiting to do a trade deal with me, uh, says Boris Johnson. He's using those two justifications. I think in truth, he hasn't really come to terms with the contradictions of either approach. My fear or my my expectation, better way of putting it, is he's going to be stuck in between. And come the last weeks of October, it's going to be the markets passing judgment even more than they are at the moment. And I think the politics is very up in the air. Well, what happened to the markets when he took over? Well, they've tanked. And they've tanked because no deal Brexit is such a risky course. It is a strange example. We've got conservative parties around the world who've become revolutionary. That's not what conservative parties are for. Conservative parties are there to preserve institutions and to fend off radical change. We're living at a time when the Conservative Party in the UK, you can draw your own parallels elsewhere, has become this revolutionary force. In a way, it does have echoes of the ultra-left in that it's elevated to the pinnacle of achievement a purity an ideological purity that is really dangerous. Can you make any assessment of Boris Johnson's leadership abilities apart from Brexit? Someone who's made it to prime minister, it would be, yeah. it would be foolish to underestimate him. Look, he's, he's got a good education. Some people would say he's put an education to waste. Um, he went to... He went to the university I went oh. to, actually, but he went to Eton before Oxford. then. I didn't go there. Look, don't underestimate him. He's got a good education. He, he, he's unlike President Trump in an important way in that he really bends the wind. Whatever you say about President Trump, he's been saying the same things about free trade since the 1980s. He's got a, a three or four consistent uh, beliefs that he comes back to. Boris Johnson has far less um, of an ideological anchor, uh, but he has attached himself to this Brexit cause, I think, because he saw it as the route to leadership of the Conservative Party and the prime ministership that he, and he was has correct. always wanted. And he was correct. And he was correct. Does he know history? He knows, he's got his own version of history, um, <laughs> usually with him appearing at it, in it. Um, but he's written, he's written widely. He can quote Pericles to you um, better than I can. Um, look, it's important not to underestimate him. And I think that you shouldn't compete with him at the level of a jokester. I think you have to take him, people like this on, on the grounds of what, whether or not they're going to deliver for the people they say they're going to support. Is he, is he a populist? I don't know what you mean by that. If by that you mean someone who's um, antithetical to pluralism, which is what some of the academic literature would say about a populist, someone who wants to play the people, uh, the, the will of the people against a, a pluralist society. I don't think that's right. I think, is he trucking with nativism and nationalism? Yes, he is. What do you think Boris Johnson's elevation means for UK-US relations? I think that he is going to throw in his lot with making a deals with President Trump. I think he's going to want to cleave towards the Trump administration, and he'll have very little power to say no to what they want. The constraint on him is that not just President Trump personally, but the policies of the Trump administration, whether in respect of climate change or in respect of immigration or in respect of Iran, are very unpopular in the UK, and that will be a constraint. So we talked about Donald Trump a little bit. There was a something of a scandal in the last couple of months with respect to the UK ambassador to the US. And you have obviously a lot of experience with diplomacy and foreign relations, so none of this is new and novel to you. So there were some cables sent by the UK ambassador that were leaked that said some derogatory things about Donald Trump, his leadership style, and maybe his abilities. That became known. And so then under pressure, he resigned from the position, not before which Donald Trump himself tweeted some things personally about him. I believe you said, with respect to that incident, that Boris Johnson was spineless. Why did you say that? Because in the debate about that, Boris Johnson refused to support the ambassador while he was still in post. Uh, there was a conservative leadership election and Boris Johnson refused to support an ambassador and his right to express his opinion. I thought that was terrible, really, not just because he's a former foreign secretary, but uh, Kim Darroch, the ambassador, was a man of enormous common sense. He was one of the least pompous people I know he was accused of pomposity by President Trump, but he wasn't a pompous person. He's an extremely experienced diplomat, and I thought it was the responsibility of an aspirant prime minister to support public service and support the civil servants in the work they're doing. Do you think it was tenable, though, for someone who 
should not have had those cables leak and was giving his best opinion and assessment, which is what people do all the time. And by the way, many would argue they were not wrong assessments. Was it tenable for him to continue, though, once those things became public? Well, I certainly think the cost of his enforced resignation was greater than the cost of him staying on. He was due to retire anyway in six to 12 months. And I think that the message that went to the rest of the Foreign Office, which is beware what you say, is not a good message. Because in the modern age, you know, I was foreign minister, I didn't need an ambassador to do the routine things. I could text a foreign minister and say, are you going to the following meeting? You know, I need to catch you for five minutes. I I could text another minister to say that. But you do need a really good ambassador to tell you what's really going on underneath the surface of the country that you're negotiating with or dealing with. And so I think there was a a folly there. Do you think that nations generally in the West are turning more inward? Yes. Is that a reversible course? Well, yes, it is. uh, And I think it has to be reversed. Look, uh, first of all, the facts about the inward turn are evident. Uh, you don't have to argue that there's isolationism on the rampage to see that post the financial crisis, post the failings in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's been a, a drawing in by the West. Um, secondly, is it a problem? Yes, it's a huge problem because we're living in an age of interdependence. We're living in an age when countries and peoples are more closely linked together, not just by climate, but by concerns about public health or nuclear security or economic uh, interdependence. And so the need for countries to cooperate is greater than ever. And it's also, and I see that in my own work, look, the International Rescue Committee is a global humanitarian charity. We're facing what I call an age of impunity. That means that bad actors around the world drop chemical weapons, they besiege communities, they target civilians, they target aid workers. It's been Western countries of liberal democratic hue that have pushed back against that over the last 70 years. Uh, All countries signed up to the UN Charter, but it was driven uh, from the 1941 uh, Atlantic Charter, the meeting of Churchill and Roosevelt in Newfoundland, who said that the post-war order could not repeat the mistakes of the interwar period, that the rights of people needed to sit alongside the rights of states to build international order. That is now what is in retreat. It's not just Western power in retreat, it's the values of the Enlightenment that are in retreat too, and they're founded on the rights of individuals. Can it be reversed? I think it needs to be reversed, not just in the interests of prosperity, but in the interests of peace, frankly, because an international order in the modern age that doesn't have institutions for global cooperation is going to be a very unstable and very unequal international disorder. So the retreat from what had been the international order, what are the origins of that, you think? I think the origins of the uh, retreat are significantly twofold. One is foreign policy failure, notably in Iraq. But the second is the economic crisis, the seeds of which came before 2008, but which exploded in 2008. There's one other factor which is obviously relevant to this. The shift in economic power towards emerging economies, notably China, but not only, means that there needed to be a shift in the global balance of power. There was a shift in the global balance of economic power, and it needed to be reflected in political power as well. I think that those are the origins of it. I think it was inevitable that there had to be a rebalancing. The way in which the West has gone into retreat has put the most vulnerable people in the world at a disadvantage, has weakened the multilateral system at a time when it's needed more than ever, and has contributed to global instability. What in particular about the Iraq war, votes on it in individual countries and also the prosecution of it, has helped to unravel the world order? I think you can think about that politically, morally, uh, and institutionally. Uh, Politically, uh, it turned out to be a disastrous strategic error. Uh, Morally, the uh, ground that was lost as a result of Abu Ghraib and other uh, elements. And institutionally, obviously, the going around the UN um, set a very bad precedent. I was peripherally involved in Tony Blair's speech in Chicago in 1999, at the time of the Kosovo conflict, which set five tests in what he called a doctrine of international community. And one of those tests was about the UN and its role. So I think institutionally there's been an undermining and it's given license to all sorts of uh, bad or rogue actors to believe that they can just do their own thing. So one of the big things you dealt with early on in your tenure as foreign minister was the killing of Alexander Litvinenko. Do you think the West has learned anything from that incident? And are there ever any consequences for Russia and for Putin for engaging in that kind of conduct? 
Well, I think the West has learned some lessons because it was, it was a rogue action. It was the actions of a rogue state. And they've been repeated subsequently in the invasion of uh, Georgia, the invasion of Crimea, then the attempted assassination of Mr. Skripal, a former KGB agent, uh, now a British citizen, and frankly, in the attempt to destabilize liberal democracy. I know you've discussed Mueller, etc. You know, there was and is a sustained attempt to destabilize American democracy. There was and is a sustained attempt to destabilize European democracy, funding of far-right parties, interference in elections. The question is not whether we've learned the lessons, the question is whether the Russians have learned. And I'm afraid that the lesson that they've learned so far is that they can get away with a lot as long as they fragment and weaken the countries of liberal democracy and if they find allies elsewhere. And that's what they've done. They're, you know, they're obviously a declining economy in various ways, but they are mobilizing their power in a far more effective way than we are. Which leads us to the work then that you're doing now. It's a very important work at the IRC relating to the plight of refugees around the world. Refugees and displaced people. Refugees and displaced people, yes. Thank you. You yourself are the child of refugees. Tell us about your, your background and your parents. Yeah, it's interesting how it's become perhaps obviously more important to me given the job I'm doing. But in a kind of British way, I think I probably didn't examine my own history very much when I was younger. I mean, it, introspection is not a British characteristic. Um, is not one of our national strengths. But um, when I think about it, my childhood was, I can read things into the way my parents lived their lives and brought up me and my brother as kids that speaks to that. My dad was a refugee from Belgium in 1940. He was born in Brussels. Uh, He lived in Brussels where his dad was a leather worker. My mum was a refugee from Poland in 1946. She survived the war in Poland. She's both Jewish. And my mum's father was killed. Quite recently, we discovered he was killed in a concentration camp outside Stuttgart, January 1945, actually. And the Holocaust was the background music to my childhood. I was born in 1965. And my parents, maybe like many people who were affected by the war, because they'd been through and they'd seen such hell and they'd lost so many people, in their families. They wanted to protect their offspring. They wanted to give them more security. And so I had a very middle-class, unspectacular childhood that was notable, I look back, for its security. Not particularly wealthy, but secure. An assumption in the 1970s middle class that you could graduate into the middle class. And so I think that when I applied for the job here at the International Rescue Committee, I said there were three reasons I wanted to take the job. One was that I liked difficult problems and the problems that the IRC faces. How do you get medical aid into Syria? How do you teach girls suffering under the Taliban in parts of Afghanistan? How do you promote successful integration of refugees into societies where they land? I like difficult questions. Uh, Secondly, I thought that the IRC was a bit of a sleeping giant. What could be more striking than to be founded by Einstein? And thirdly, I said both my parents were refugees, and so there were, I had a sense that I could close the circle, giving back to people who weren't probably the same religion as my parents, who weren't in the same situation, but had elements of commonality uh, that, that drew me to their cause. Do you have a recollection of what the sort of attitude was in the UK and elsewhere towards refugees and displaced persons when you were younger? And has it changed? I mean, Britain's obviously different from America in that it's much less of an immigrant society, although people have been coming to Britain for thousands of years from around Europe. Now, I'm not a practicing Jew, so I'm not, I'm more culturally Jewish than religiously Jewish, if you know what I mean. And I spent four years of my childhood in Leeds, so not in an especially cosmopolitan part of the UK. I didn't feel hostility, um, but I suppose I went out of my way to integrate. And I didn't particularly advertise my difference. When I was foreign secretary, I always used to say to people, I'm a foreign secretary who's Jewish, not a Jewish foreign secretary. Right. There's a nuance there that's important. Now, the, the antagonism to foreigners peaks at odd times. I mean, in the 90s in the UK, there was huge animus to allowing people from Hong Kong to come to the UK. It turns out, I mean, a lot of them went to Canada. They've made huge successes of themselves. It'd been great if we'd allowed them. There was a peak of hostility in the late 90s when we were in government about Kosovan refugees from the Balkans. 
and you know from your own history in the 20s here, it's not a new phenomenon. Yeah. Even in, I think, 1940, the Washington Post did a poll, two-thirds of Americans didn't want to allow Jews to come to America. So I didn't have a strong sense of that as a child, but I think I, I didn't go out of my way to find it either. I'll be back with David Miliband right after this. Stay tuned. A lot of businesses have the same problem, a hodgepodge of systems that keeps them from seeing the real numbers. One system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's a big mess that takes up too much time and resources. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business. It's an easy-to-use cloud platform that gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time and money by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits. netsuite.com preet. Before the break, David Miliband told me about peaks of intolerance towards people from other places. I asked him, does this happen organically or is it the leaders stoking fear? Well, it's two way, isn't it? It's evidently two way in that you can legitimize the illegitimate if the uh, leadership is of a particular character. But I think that there's also the factor of sheer scale and pace of change in demography. People write about this. Some of the peaks are associated with the percentage of foreign born in different countries and the pace of change. And that's certainly been the case in different parts of Europe, we should never underestimate what a challenge it is to integrate people into a society, nor the benefits that can come from it. And I saw that for myself in the way Britain changed, actually. If you think about Britain in the 70s and Britain in the 2000s or 2010s now, it's undoubtedly a far more confident, or it's became a much more confident as well as diverse country. And what's tragic, I think, post the financial crisis is how that confidence has been lost. So the IRC... Can you give us a sense of the scope of the issue that the IRC deals with? But then also what's impressive to me, and maybe people don't appreciate this, but the IRC is a huge organization with a presence in so many places. Describe both the apparatus that you have and what the biggest challenges are. So we're an international humanitarian aid organization that works across the arc of crisis from the war zone, so northwest Syria today, parts of South Sudan, parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We work from the war zone to the rest of that country where people flee to escape violence. We work in the neighboring states where there are refugees, people who've left their own country as a result of war and conflict. We work on refugee transit routes because people are fleeing through Niger up to Libya trying to get to Europe. And we work to help resettle refugees and asylum seekers in countries that they land in. We've got 25 offices across the U.S., that are resettling refugees. The Trump administration has massively reduced the number of refugees who are allowed to come. Uh, But we've got 190 field sites around the world employing 13,000 employees with about 15,000 additional auxiliary workers who are daily paid staff. Uh, We're now an $809, $800 million organization. Uh, We've more or less doubled in size in the last six years. And we are an organization that doesn't just deliver health or water and sanitation or education. We try and meet the needs of the whole person. And on the wall behind me, you can see our strategy map. We say that we're helping people survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. Our work fits into to five main areas of helping people survive, helping their health, their education, their income. Economics is really important to us. Because refugees and displaced people are out of their own homes for a long time, They need an independent source of income as well as international aid. And just to finish the picture, we're more or less 75% government funded from governments around the world of that $800 million. And we're 25% funded by individuals, foundations and corporations. How how many different countries are we in? That fund you? That fund us probably about half a dozen main funders. US, UK, Sweden, European Union does the whole, Germany. And private donors are spread around the world. When a country like the U.S. under the leadership of Trump dramatically reduces the number of refugees and displaced persons admitted, how does that affect you and the organization? Well, it affects us both directly and indirectly. The direct way it affects us is that more refugees are trapped 
outside this country waiting to be allowed in. I mean, there are 100,000 Iraqis who actually worked for the U.S., military or diplomats who have a special visa status that would allow them to come to the U.S., and only 150 have been allowed in this year. This is, these are people who put their lives on the line for the U.S. Whatever you think about the Iraq or Afghan wars, these are people who put themselves on the line. But also refugees from Congo or elsewhere, all religions, 80% reduction in Muslim refugees, 60% reduction in Christian refugees under the Trump administration. So we are directly affected because we're helping fewer people as a result of those decisions. Indirectly, there are governments around the world who say, well, Trump administration is not taking refugees. We're not going to take refugees. In fact, we're going to push them out. I suppose I should have said one other direct effect. If you think about the crisis at the southern border, the reduction in international U.S. aid to countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, that has a pretty direct right. effect too. A, we're working in those countries, but B, it helps drive uh, the flow of people that we're seeing to the southern border at the moment. I'm struck by something you said a second ago. So the American president decides we're going to reduce the numbers. And then leaders of other countries say, well, maybe we'll just follow suit. Is that because they're persuaded by some logic or they're using it as an excuse because they don't want to spend the money mm, They're on using those it things. more as an excuse. And they're also worried about what their own population are going to say. Yeah. I mean, in 2016, belatedly, the Obama administration raised the number of refugees being allowed into the U.S. Uh, from more or less 60 or 65,000 to 90,000. And hey, presto, a lot of other countries stepped up to do the same thing. So it's not rocket science. When the U.S. reduces yeah. from 90,000 to 20,000, then you get a reduction. Now, I think it's important to give your listeners a bit of a sense of the scale, though, because refugee resettlement helps a tiny proportion of those who are expelled from their own countries by conflict or persecution. Around the world today, you're talking about 29.5 million refugees and asylum seekers, people who've left their own country, not for economic reasons, but for political reasons, and another 41, 42 million who are still within their own country, but are homeless as a result of war or persecution. So these are the world record-breaking levels. And the power of example is especially striking at a time when the problem has got so much worse. What are the arguments you would make or you would give people who say, look, we have enough of our own problems. We yeah. can't solve other people's problems. What's the argument politically, emotionally, that people should be making about why they should care about this more? Well, I think first, these people are productive members of society when they arrive. We know that from all the data, but we also know, look, Einstein became a proud American. And, and remind us again, you said it, I think, I didn't want people to miss it. What's the relationship of Albert Einstein to the IRC? So Albert Einstein helped create the yeah. International Rescue Committee when Eleanor Roosevelt reported to him that President Roosevelt was not willing to admit more Jews into the US. Albert Einstein and 50 others in New York helped set up the International Rescue Committee to work in occupied Europe to get fake passports to help people escape from the Nazis. So the first point is from Einstein to Madeleine Albright to Sergey Brin, people have come to America and been productive contributors here, not a burden here. Very important. Secondly, it's harder to get to the US as a refugee than through any other route. In other words, the security vetting is real and serious. Third, there's a moral obligation to those in Iraq and Afghanistan who've worked for you, uh, put their lives on the line, uh, to come here. Fourth, and very importantly, we're not talking about most of the world's refugees coming here. The Trump administration perfectly legitimately says we want to build resilience of people in the countries to which refugees go. Most of those countries are poor countries, not rich countries. I mean, Bangladesh has taken 750,000 Rohingya refugees in the last 18 months. Uganda has taken uh, one and a half million South Sudanese refugees. These are countries with income per head... <laughs> one-fiftieth of the U.S. level. So how, how do you explain, then, the generosity and the welcoming nature of a country like Bangladesh? Because they felt that the ethnic cleansing going on next door was so unconscionable that even though they didn't want the Rohingya to become Bangladeshis, they don't consider them to be real Bengalis, uh, they saw that blocking, building a wall, if you like, the holding, keeping the fences closed, uh, was unconscionable. I mean, I asked someone in northern Uganda, he was the deputy chairman of the local district council in northern Uganda, and I said to him, you know, there must be politics here because there are loads of poor Ugandans who are here. And he said, look, these people are our brothers, and they helped us 20 or 30 years ago in the worst days of Idi Amin, and we have to help them now. You won't answer this question, but if I had to ask you to rank countries that are facing an influx of potential refugees, which are the most welcoming? And yeah, which why are the do least? you think I won't answer it? I mean, <laughs> oh, I will answer it. it. No, no, no you, I will. Seriously. Please. I mean, it's quite surprising, really. If you look at 
employment and other aspects of welcome, Uganda is actually top of the list. Uganda gives every refugee who arrives land. They let them travel anywhere in the country. They give them full access to public services, including kids, and they support them into work. And so uh, 40% of female refugees, we just put out a report about this, 40% of female refugees in Uganda are actually working. So it's surprising that Uganda comes out top, bottom of the league. I mean, it's hard to try and uh, figure that because, of course, those who are most vicious towards refugees don't let them in in the first place. So it's what we know is that there are killing fields in Syria, Yemen, that are humanitarian catastrophes, and that's the worst place to live. What's the most gratifying part of this job that you do? The feeling that I'm making a difference, that we're making a difference. It's my colleagues who are making a difference day by day. Someone once went to... um, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, and said, if you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you have hope. And if you're in politics, you can see the big picture, but the danger is that you lose sight of the individual. If you're in an NGO where you are trying to make the world better one life at a time, the great gratification is that you can see the individuals. We think we helped 27 million individuals last year, but the great gratification is you can see the individuals. The great danger is that you lose sight of the big picture. And part of my job is to make sure that we both attend to the details of being the best humanitarian aid agency in terms of the quality of what we do and the most insightful in terms of drawing the bigger lessons. Are you following the presidential primary? Of course. I mean, Closely? I live here and... <laughs> I mean, I live here and... It matters for whether you're a citizen or not. So yes, it of does. Course. So given what you understand about what it takes to make it to the top in politics, who impresses you in this field? It's a hell of a system you've got. My God, it's a <laughs> brutal system. I mean, it, so it goes on I, forever. I admire them all for being up there. Uh, I think that politics has got to be about what you're for as well as what you're against. One of the hardest lessons I learned was that if you don't define yourself, you get defined by your opponents, and you define yourself first, and then you can define others. That's the big challenge. Now, I don't think it's really right if I'm heading an NGO to start picking out individual politicians. I think I have to dance around that. I do think that the danger of the whole of politics focusing around a particular Twitter handle is real. And in the end, there are deep yearnings, I think, across this country for a politics that delivers real change. And that's meant to be the purpose of progressive politics. And I think that uh, while I understand why the Democrats are fighting with each other, uh, they're going to need to figure out what's the forward agenda, economically, socially, politically, for this country, which is has got more resources than ever before, but also in some ways more challenges than ever before. Let me ask you one more question about politics. I've been thinking about this issue, and that is very successful politicians project a theme of hope. Barack Obama ran on hope and also change. It is also true that sometimes the way to get people to get to the polls is not just through inspiration and hope, but also to cause them to understand, appreciate, and maybe even fear the consequences of not going to the polls or the consequences of the status quo, or in this case, a second Trump term, how do you think a good politician balances the need for giving people hope and also causing them to have sufficient fear to vote their interests? Well, sometimes people say hope beats fear, and I don't really buy that. I Mm. think that uh, the way I would put it is that you've got to make yourself the repository of hope, and you've got to make the other guy or gal the repository of risk. You've got to be the, the candidate that makes change real, But you've also got to show that the other side represent a risk to things that you hold dear. That's obviously different in your system than in ours, because it's probably over-personalized here. But even in the parliamentary system, personality matters a lot. But the short answer is I think you've got to do both. I think the real challenge for people of my place on the political spectrum, but also people who do politics in the way I do, is that we end up sounding like problem solvers who are technocratic. And I think as well as being a repository for hope and crystallizing why your opponent uh, represents risk, I think there's another dualism that one has to really come to terms with. And that is how you combine reason, which I believe in, with passion, which is necessary. 
if you try and use reason to beat passion, it won't work. You need reason and passion, as well as hope, to win. Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten, political or otherwise, that you'd like to share with folks? I think that the best advice for anyone, really, who wants a leadership position is uh, to be a good listener as well as a good lecturer. Uh, the best politicians, I think, are really, really good at listening. And they find the right people to listen to. And they don't use that to substitute for their own mind. Um, because the worst thing is to be a politician who defines your own reality. I'm a great believer you should know your own mind, but not define your own reality. Uh, but I think listening is an underestimated virtue in politics. And also in the practice of law. Which well, I right wouldn't about. know about that. I'm not, I, I, I don't know whether you, you I'm ha, you have to hear You have to hear the other person's point of view before you destroy it. Yeah. Before you dismantle it. And you also have to understand, it's one of the best answers that I've, I ask that question of a lot of folks. Oh, wow. If you're not listening, then you're not understanding how it is that that person needs to process information. You can't put yourself in that other person's shoes. You can never persuade them of anything if you're not listening to them and understanding the mode of their communication I with saw, you. I think I really learned that um, when I was doing diplomacy because, of course, the first rule of diplomacy is to put yourself in the position of the person you're negotiating with. And you can't do that if you're not able to really listen to them and figure out where's the chink in their armor. Is it that there's a logical breakdown or have they given a hint that emotionally they're responsive to a certain form of argument or will a bit of flattery get you there or do you have to play the hard man? I mean, there's different ways of doing it. So with respect to the IRC, so many challenges that you talked about, what are the pressing things you're dealing with now, whether you're talking about diseases like Ebola or anything else? Ebola is a really good example of how the modern geography of poverty and risk is changing because Democratic Republic of Congo is a country that's multiply challenged, uh, not just by misgovernance and poverty and corruption and war uh, and climate change, uh, but also public health emergency. Uh, we've just heard today that Rwanda is closing its border because Goma, where I was visiting um, six, eight weeks ago, has now had two cases. It's on the Rwanda DRC border. We're running 59 health screening centers uh, across eastern DRC. So obviously we're worried about our own staff, but we're also worried about the contagion effect because the striking feature of the crises we're dealing with today is that they don't stay within their own country. They get exported both through people and through the movement of people most Obviously, right. diseases uh, do not respect borders. Diseases do not respect borders. We're also got an important job. We have to follow the news. So the Rwanda decision is important. But where's Syria on the agenda? I, I, I've got 450, 500 staff in the northwest and the northeast of Syria. That crisis is going on. Yemen is the world's largest humanitarian catastrophe. 24 million people in humanitarian need. A misbegotten war strategy of which I'm afraid the U.S. is a supporter, which has not just brought humanitarian catastrophe, but it's actually empowered precisely the people that the Saudi-led coalition says it opposes. So the Iranians are stronger today than they were uh, four or five uh, years ago. So we, we have to balance the emergency response with the need to stay in a sustainable way. And I think that uh, when I say we work across the arc of crisis, it speaks both to the acute emergency and to the chronic. And unless the world gets better at dealing with the chronic emergencies, it's gonna face many more acute emergencies. So we have a lot of thoughtful listeners who care about the world and want to get involved. If someone wanted to be involved in these issues or specifically to be of help or assistance to the IRC, is there something that people can do? Well, it'd be great if they live in the U.S., they could actually come and help at one of our 25 offices around the U.S. where we continue to help refugees, uh, asylum seekers across the country. They should visit rescue.org, which is our website. I hope that if they're an employer, whether here or elsewhere, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere, they would be interested in hiring refugees. I hope they'll use their voice. One of the most moving things for me, I gave a talk in San Francisco, and afterwards this woman came up to me in floods of tears, a Vietnamese woman. And I said, why, why are you crying? And she said, uh, my, my parents were Vietnamese refugees, and they never wanted to talk about their experience. They never wanted to talk about their history. They never wanted to talk about their gratitude to America. And she said, I think because they and others like them refused to talk about what it was to be a refugee, we brought the backlash on ourselves. So 
I hope that if they visit rescue.org, they can see the facts. And then a final thing, obviously, I'm uh, I'm British, so I hate talking about money, but I've lived in New York for six years, so now I can uh, very <laughs> openly and uh, avowedly appeal that any of your listeners with deep pockets, we'd love to have them add to our growing list of private supporters because uh, with governments in retreat, it's got to be individuals, foundations, and corporations which step up. It's God's work. Thank you, David Milbank. Thank you very much, Preet. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. This week, David and I talk about how the West should deal with China, how accountability is built into the parliamentary system, why he misses politics, and what he told me to do next time I'm in London. To hear the exclusive Stay Tuned bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. Hey, folks, obviously, everyone in the country is mourning the loss of life in El Paso and in Dayton. Uh, and that's what people are talking about in Congress, although they're currently on vacation. And that's what I've been talking about on the show and among my friends and former colleagues, too. This week in the Cafe Insider newsletter, I wrote my weekly essay on just these very issues. And I thought this week I would just read you what I wrote. From August 7th, 2019, Controlled Anger, Lifeblood of Change. Dear Reader, last week in this space I reflected on two emotions that have the power to usher in substantial political change, hope and fear. There are, to be sure, many powerful emotions one could so describe. Since Sunday, however... I've been experiencing one particular visceral feeling, anger. The breaking news came Saturday afternoon. Another mass shooting after last week's carnage at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, this time at a busy Walmart in El Paso, Texas. Early reports indicated at least 20 shot in the sister town to Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. The shooter drove 10 hours, an arsenal in tow, to massacre Mexicans because as set down in a hateful screed, he believed they were invading America. Another community shocked, wounded, and changed. You watch the story unfold, hope the early reporting is wrong, brace for the worst. Even before the full body count is known, news outlets post graphics to rank the latest incident in terms of lethality. At this point, the El Paso shooting is the sixth deadliest shooting on U.S. soil. I heard someone on TV say, that every mass shooting is both the same and different. I nodded when he said that. The arc does seem ever similar. The social, political, and personal aftermath of a mass shooting in America has sadly become an exercise in deja vu. You see the predictable statements of career politicians. You hear stories of heroism, specific to this chaos, but universal in what they say about certain people's capacity for courage under literal fire. It's all too awful to contemplate, but also utterly familiar. Expressions of condolence seem insufficient. Calls for change seem futile. So you go to bed sadder, a bit more fearful it can happen in your community. Not very hopeful anyone will do a damn thing about it. The status quo seems fixed. It is wearying. Millions of Americans woke up Sunday morning expecting to hear more details about the El Paso shooting. Motivations of the shooter, tributes to the fallen, updates on the wounded. There was that, of course, but there was something else. Terrible news of another mass shooting overnight in Dayton, Ohio. Nine people murdered in under a minute. The cables had to go split-screen, toggling between the terror in El Paso and the terror in Dayton, between two mass gunslaying separated by only 13 hours. And in that circumstance, the deja vu feels not just maddening, but grotesque. Because now, there are two unspeakable tragedies, unfolding in parallel. And now... The same old platitudes, thoughts and prayers. The same confounding calls to an action. Now is not the time to talk about politics or legislation. The same nonsensical status quo statements sound downright pathetic because you just heard them yesterday. For me, on Sunday afternoon, in the wake of two senseless murder scenes, sadness and heartbreak gave way to anger. Boiling anger. Anger at the shooters, but also anger at a racist president who foments hate and white nationalism. And then ever sharply and unforgivingly, anger at the insufferable craven boobs we call lawmakers who perennially block all common-sense laws on guns. More than 90% of Americans support universal background checks, yet no action. 75% of Americans support a 30-day waiting period for gun sales, yet no action. 70% of Americans support requiring privately owned guns to be registered with the police, 
No action. There was something else that added to my anger. It was not just the inexcusable inaction. It was also the utter cowardice on the part of so many lawmakers, especially Republicans, in their radio silence. So many felt that it sufficed to post banal tweets of condolence and commiseration, but went missing from the airwaves to defend their policy views. CNN reported that after the Dayton shooting, 49 out of 50 GOP lawmakers declined invitations to discuss the shootings on air. Who knew politicians were so coy? First responders braved bullets to save innocents in two American cities, and yet scores of elected officials fled the public square in the aftermath. If you believe in the status quo, say so and defend it. If you believe in change, then fight for it. If you can't do either, then step aside and leave your office to someone with integrity. It's pretty simple. I am angry. So are many of you. Anger isn't reason. Anger isn't analysis. Anger isn't evidence. Anger isn't a policy proposal, reform, or solution. Raw anger can cloud and distort more than illuminate. So one needs to be careful. But controlled anger can be the lifeblood of change. At least I hope so. So don't let your anger fade. Don't let this moment pass. Let your representative know how you feel. Especially let your senator know. Call. March. Vote. Give. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Miliband. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.